Hello, my name's Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here at St Peter's Fireside. It's good to be with you uh, today. This time last year, um, the first Sunday of February, um, Emmanuel Church had just joined with St Peter's Fireside through what we called an adoption merger. There was much excitement and over the next couple of months, quite a bit of momentum too. And then of course, COVID hit. So I want to celebrate uh, the many things that have gone well as part of this adoption merger and the ways in which I and many former Emmanuel people have been greatly blessed through what has happened between us. It's been a delight uh, to have become um, St Peter's Fireside together. But I also want to acknowledge uh, some of the sadness at how it hasn't panned out in the ways that we would have hoped and that we had planned. In fact, we had lots of little um, spreadsheets and, and, and time schedules for things um, that haven't happened, that have sat um, by the wayside. And it might not happen for another while yet. There's grief there. And so just want to acknowledge that today as, as we kind of come to this uh, point in our journey together. There's grief there. And yet, and yet we trust in the Lord. I trust in the Lord and wait with hopeful expectation of what he is yet to do among us. He remains Emmanuel, God with us through thick and thin, through wilderness, through plenty. So I want to thank you for your patience, all of you. And uh, please continue to pray with us in anticipation uh, for all that is yet to come among us. So as we come to the sermon for today, let's, let's pray together. Lord, in wilderness and in plenty, uh, you are good. Your love endures forever. You are Lord, and you call us to, to follow you, to find our, our home, our hope in you. So we ask today that as we look uh, to your word, you would speak to us by your spirit, that we would see this Jesus who was to come, who has come and is going to come again these things in his name. Amen. Well, recently in the Lee household, we have introduced a new element to our Sabbath rhythms. We call um, dinner time and just after uh, family fun time. And up till now, at dinner time, we've only just discussed the things that we have found positive or that we want to celebrate from the week. And what we've done um, up till now is, is um, to write those things down and put them in a little box that's on our dinner table. And at the end of the year, um, we read them and, and celebrate them and rejoice in those together. But recently we focused um, on something else too, um, something hard from the week, especially those things that we've failed at or found hard. But here's the thing that we learned from and grew from. This is to help us especially our kids, I guess, but, but us too, um, to build resilience, to see failure as a way to progress and to see hard things as the only way to stretch us and to grow and not as something to be avoided or um, hidden from. Today's passage has something of a trickiness to it. As we will see, it's quite hard. I'll be continuing on from Alistair's uh, sermon last week when he focused on the ministry of, of John. And I'll be focusing on the verses uh, 7 to 14 this week. 
and hopefully we'll be able to learn not to skate over it or to avoid it, but instead to name it and to see it as a, a route to growth, to stretch us, to grow in us. John's ministry and message is quite a spiky and spicy one. But there's no doubting its significance. We see him in, in all four Gospels um, preparing the way for Jesus. So today, we're going to look at John's manner, his mission, then look at his message, particularly that of repentance today. So firstly, let's look at the manner of John. We've had quite a, build, a big build-up to John so far even, even before chapter 3, we've heard about the faith of his parents, the, the journey of faith of his parents, the circumstances of his unlikely birth, and the kind of crazy prophecies about his life. And as chapter 3 opens, we get the sense that something is building, this historical background. Here's who was ruling, here's who was doing this. Something new is starting now, folks. Centuries of waiting for the word of God again for the Israelite people has been building. Generations of silence and frustration and of failure. And the word of God comes to John, the voice in the wilderness. And so there's something glorious about this. It's a great build-up. The, the, the drum rolls are rolling. And what's the th first thing that we hear him say? You brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Excuse me, John, sorry. Um, could you say that again? I've just come a long way to kind of hear you speak. I just don't think I quite heard you right. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Gulp. John's manner leaves something to be desired, I think, if you're a conflict-averse like me or you're passive-aggressive like, like most Canadians. This is John the Baptist, but he's also John who's saying some hard things. He's also John the prophet, the latest in a line of prophets who would say hard things because hard things needed to be said at this point. You brood of vipers, you bunch of poisonous serpents, you offspring of snakes. Why are you coming out to see me here, fleeing like snakes do out of a fire in the desert? He had clearly not read how to win friends and influence people. Another preacher has described John's manner as being like sandpaper. He puts it quite well like this. Instead of coming, as it were, with a pot of paint to go over all the cracks of their lives, to paint over their disappointments and their failures and their fears, he instead comes with sandpaper. John comes with sandpaper. I'm not talking about the finest sandpaper that you use for the finishing work of a project. I mean that hairy stuff that the carpenter uses at the beginning of the work when the painter comes to your home and says, it's going to cost a lot of money here before I even put a lick of paint on. And you say, does it have to? And he says, of course, I can just paint over it, but it will be a dreadful job. What you need me to do is to work very carefully in preparing the surface if you want the finish to be right. If you want the paint to adhere and to stick. And this is what we find John the Baptist doing. He is coming with sandpaper on the surface of the hearts of his listeners by telling them what they need to hear of the good news so that the good news will actually stick. John the Baptist, John the prophet, John the sandpaper. 
preparing the surface, even though it's harsh, preparing the way for the Lord and in the hearts of the people. I wonder what you do when you read something in the Bible where it kind of grates against you, grates against your sensibilities, where you go, wow, I wouldn't have said it like that. I guess there are at least a couple of options. One is to kind of brush it under the carpet. And so you think to yourself, well, I know that sounds harsh, but I'm really just looking for comfort and kind of some spiritual massage. And so since this doesn't really do that, I'm just gonna ignore it and then move on to something a bit more friendly, a bit more cute, a bit more cuddly. Another is to take a pen and just to score it out, to score over it. And so you say, God can't be like that because culture says that's not PC or um, I'm not like that. My friends are not like that. And so surely God can't be like that either. And both sound kind of viable and, and, and preferable in many ways, at least in the short term. But soon we realize that God as genie in, in a bottle or God is simply a bigger version of myself actually doesn't have much power, doesn't have much to say into a harsh world. As we continue with these roots of just ignoring it or of writing it off, we find our spiritual lives become kind of brittle, slightly dead. So what are we supposed to do when things don't fit in with our own frameworks? I think there are many answers to this, there are big answers to this, but let me just make a small start. I think we come, we're supposed to come honestly to God and say, Lord, this isn't how I would do it. This isn't how I would say it. In fact, I find this quite offensive. But what am I missing? What is out of kilter in my own perspective? What assumptions am I bringing that say just about, say just as much about me and my fears as they do about what it says about you. Lord, would you help me to engage with you as you are, not as I would wish you to be? I can't even shape who I want to be most of the time, let alone have the wisdom to shape who you should be. Lord, have mercy, help me. I think that'd be an okay place to start. You see, the manner of John is like sandpaper. It's abrasive don't really know what to do with it. But it's connected to his mission. John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way so that all people will see the salvation of God. All flesh will see his salvation. The saving rescue of God. Saving from what? Well, from sin and rebellion that has broken humanity's relationship to God, each other, and to our world. So John's manner is related to the mission he has to be a voice crying in the wilderness, danger, danger. God's wrath is coming to judge the evil and sin of the world. Yes, it's to remake and to renew all things, but, but danger, be careful, beware, watch out. Now, the wrath of God is one of those things that, that chills us a little bit. It's one of the greatest stumbling blocks for many um, to Christianity. 
we might have experienced rage from others. We might have been in those states ourselves and, and we know it's not pretty. Let me suggest that God's wrath is not anger like we know it though. It's not the capricious or wild flying off the handle that, that I'm sure you've experienced either as victim or perpetrator. It's a settled judgment against wrong. It's a settled judgment against wrong. And so I, I've, I've always found it helpful to have a different perspective on, on this. And I find um, a theologian uh, from Croatia called Miroslav Volf to be helpful. He has been in a country um, which has experienced genocide and the horror of ethnic cleansing. And he writes about um, the wrath and the, the violence of God like this. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where his paper was um, given. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon, you discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human non-violence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. End quote. God's judgment and wrath against evil is a hard doctrine, but a necessary one in, in places and spaces where injustice, evil, horror are visible for all to see. Where we live, God's, God's judgment is less likely to be seen as an issue. When we have first world problems where there is racial privilege on the whole. I think Wolf is saying this, I want a God of love, but not just a God of love and nothing else. Because we need a God whose gut wrenches at systemic oppression and who feels in himself the horror of evil. There is such a thing as the wrath of God because there is such a thing as the love of God. It's because God actually cares. If there is no judgment, then there's no hope for a slave, a rape victim, a child who has been abused or bullied, or people who have been slandered or robbed or had their dignity stolen. Judgment is just one side of the coin. If tails is wrath, then heads is love. And yet, it was John's mission to say, danger, danger. There is something dangerous about the Lord's wrath. He says, danger, danger to everyone. You see, if all people were to see the salvation of the Lord, then all people needed to be on level ground. There wasn't to be uh, the spiritual elites or those with a head start, some who were judged and some who weren't. No, every valley was to be uh, filled and every mountain made low. Jews, Gentiles, Men, women, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, religious, irreligious, sinner, saint, needed to see 
and this was John's mission, wherever they were, at whatever vantage point that they stood, the salvation of God, that it was coming. Salvation was to be seen by all because there was danger for all. Whether it was the super keen people coming to get baptised in the, the desert, John gave them the message. Or whether it was those who, who thought that they had the right religious heritage because they were children of Abraham, John gave them the message. John's warning was for everyone. Verses 8 and 9 say this, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's manner is like sandpaper because his mission is so urgent. And so we come then to his message. We've had his manner, his mission, and now the message. The message of John in this mission was this. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, it tells us at the beginning of chapter 3. Repent, for judgment is coming. So he says, bear fruit, therefore, in keeping with repentance. That's his message. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, because only trees that bear fruit will avoid the axe. Judgment is coming, and so repent. Repent literally means turn around, about turn, change your mind, you turn. So John calls his hearers to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. What does it mean to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Well, we're given three um, questions in our passage which help us to see what it means to, to bear fruit. Did you notice uh, the questions that were there? What shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do? Is asked by the crowd, the tax collector and, and the soldiers. The word for do in these three questions is the same word in the original language here as bear in the phrase bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do and bear have the same um, Greek word. So we could say if the question that is asked is what shall we do? Well, the answer is this. Do fruits in keeping with repentance. I know it doesn't make sense, but, but you get the sense of what's going on here. Or if the answer is bear fruit in keeping with repentance, well, then the question is, what shall we bear? What shall we do? What shall we bear, John? If, if we've um, been baptised and we've repented, like what, what, what do we do now? How, how do we bear fruit? And so John answers them, bear fruit with repentance in action. Bear fruit with repentance in action. That's what it means to, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's bear fruit that's worthy of repentance, that shows um, that, that the repentance has been true. Bear fruit with repentance in action. To the crowd who ask him, what shall we do? He says, turn around, repent and do this. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. He speaks of generosity as repentance in action. To the tax collectors who say, what shall we do? He says, turn around and do this. Collect no more than you are authorised to do. He calls them to honesty as repentance in action. And to the soldiers, he says, turn around and do this. Don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. He repeats honesty, the call to honesty, but adds contentment as well. You see, John is following on from the Old Testament's prophets 
concern about the proper treatment of people in society who couldn't protect themselves, especially the poor. He speaks of, uh, the Old Testament speaks often of the widow, the poor, the, the, the immigrant. Any society unable to care for the weak was an unhealthy society. Never mind a nation that was supposed to have God at their centre. And so the judgment was coming. The axe was by the trees. A new kingdom was arriving. Into poverty and need, into injustice and greed, into bullying and power, into this society, John called for them to turn around, to live repentance in action with practical generosity, honesty and contentment, and to align themselves with a new kingdom because true repentance was not just talk, it was not just mere ritual or elite heritage. It wasn't someone getting baptised and thinking, great, I'm sorted now, I can just do whatever I want now. Nor was it saying, I'm from the right stock, I've got the right family name, I'll be just fine. Whatever I do, however I treat people, so long as people know my heritage and my name and my grandfather and my resume, it's going to be all right. No, John's message is this, judgment is coming. Repent and show the true repentance of your heart by bearing fruit, by living repentance in action. Because true repentance had ethical actions and consequences. It concerned their clothes. It concerned their words. It concerned their practices, their systems, their wages. Think how radical this would have been for their society and for their culture. How individual change and action would have rippled out throughout the neighbourhoods and cities as people changed in this way. As people gave to the needy what they had off their own back. People refused to kind of uh, succumb to the government's um, pressures or to take more than they, they, they should have done. They'd stop bullying people and extorting them to get what they needed from them, but were content with what they had. The fruit in keeping with repentance was repentance in action. Now, I wonder what the crowds, the tax collectors and soldiers who asked the questions did after they received these answers. We don't know, of course, but I wonder um, what happened to them. Some of them would have met Jesus and, and heard the message that was to come. I wonder how many went on their way and started living like this, trying to live like this. I suspect if they were anything like me, they did it with gusto and determination for a short while. And then they kind of did it with guilt for a long while before finally letting it deflate like an old balloon. They probably didn't have balloons in those days, but you get my point. How are we to live out repentance in action? How do we do this without having it peter out? Well, we remember that John was pointing forwards. He was preparing the way for someone to come. But the one had not come yet at this point in our passage, but Jesus does come. He arrives on the scene, he changes everything. We look at his baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire next week. But this is where we have the benefit of hindsight. We kind of know what happens. We see John's message was danger, danger, repent, turn around. But it wasn't only danger, danger. It was Luke, Luke, salvation is coming. He's coming, salvation is coming, he's come. 
And so we know what we are to turn from, our sin. Yes, dishonesty and extortion and greed turn away from those. The ways in which we use and dehumanise those around us, we're to repent, we're to turn away from those. But we're also to turn away from inaction, of reliance on on rituals and, and our heritage. And we know how we're supposed to turn. We're to, to turn with repentant action, repentance in action. But there's more for us. In our service earlier, as we confessed together, the invitation to confession was this. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Together, let's open our hearts before God, turn away from sin and to turn to Christ. To turn away from sin and to turn to Christ. You see, as we go through Luke, we hope you'll join us, you'll continue with us. We're going to see a beautiful saviour. Our motive for repentance and repentant action can not only be sorrow for our sin or, or regret for our failures, but from a sense of the grace of God that we see in Jesus Christ. We will have little motivation to repent unless we see that the grace of God awaiting us Not the rebuke of God or the harsh look of God or the cold stare of God, but the embrace of God in Jesus Christ. For us today, repentance is not just turning from sin. Not even that primarily. It's not, stop that Lloyd. Rather, it's Jesus saying, come to me. It's not Jesus saying, clean up your act. Make sure you've got it all sorted before you come to me. But he just says, come to me. Repentance, therefore, is is coming to him, turning to him moment by moment. Not just every um, six months when we feel that that, that, um, we've been tipped over the edge with our guilt and our shame, nor even once a week as we do with with church, but it's a sign that our repentance is not just kind of self-centred or or, uh, forced when we come moment by moment, and turn from those things that that are leading uh, to destruction in our lives and turn to the one who gives us life. Repentance in real life is turning in real time to Jesus Christ. Repentance in real life is turning in real time to Jesus Christ and finding their grace and mercy, welcome and embrace his spirit to empower us and give us a new vision for our day-to-day lives, of how we live practically, in reality, moment by moment, with the big things and the small things. Yes, it's turning away from sin, refusing to gaze at our own navels even, and turning to the overflowing grace and forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. This, therefore, would lead, true repentance would lead to repentance and action that flows out of, of, of repentance. That's a fruit that's born, that grows. It would bring obedience, perhaps unheard of obedience and, and, and action in our lives that, that we couldn't do before. This is fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, what does that look like? for us. I wonder what it would look like for you. What springs to mind when you think of the call to repentance and action? 
whether that's with your work or your home life, your, your interior life, your private, your private life. Remember, it's action but not perfection. It's holistic but it's not legalistic. And it's organic. It might be one moment of growth at a time, one look at a time um, towards Jesus. Notice how John doesn't tell them to quit their jobs or give everything that they had at that moment to the poor. He starts with a tunic. He starts with the next tax collection. He begins with wages that they already had. If this is the fruit that is in keeping with repentance, we must um, be careful not just to focus on the fruit um, until it becomes something that, that we're trying to, to tack onto the tree, that we're trying to kind of put onto the tree, but rather something that grows out of our abiding with Jesus, our um, connection with him, our resting in what he's done for us. And so then fruit comes as we abide with him, as we align ourselves with his kingdom, as we see um, the salvation that comes from him. You see, I've spoken a lot about doing, about action. Now, grace isn't opposed to, to effort. It's opposed to earning. Repentance is to bring about um, a desire, a determination, a, a, a resilience to, 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 to repent in action, to do these things in action. But we don't do these to earn because it's already been earned for us. Jesus is the one who lives a life that we could not live, who died the, de the death that we should have died in order that we might have life. He takes on the judgment and the wrath that was deserved for us because of our rebellion, even though he had done no wrong, even though he'd been perfectly obedient. And he does that out of love. He does that to give us life. The fruit might, might be born in us and grown in us now in real ways because of that. So let me finish with a quote uh, from um, Esau Macaulay, a, a professor and priest who in his book, Reading While Black, speaks of the racism that he had experienced in America ever since he was young. Moment, really by moment, uh, a sort of undercurrent in his life. And he looks at that wickedness, he looks at that, that, that pain and the anger that it brings him and he brings it to the cross. He allows uh, Jesus um, to take that upon him in order to free him to live. What is God's answer to black suffering and the wider human suffering and the rage that comes alongside it? It is to enter, enter it alongside us as a friend and as a redeemer. The answer to black rage is the calming words of the word made flesh. The incarnation that comes all the way down, even unto death, has been enough for us to say, yes, God, we trust you. On the cross, we meet a God who experienced injustice in the flesh and who knows the plight of innocent sufferers around the world. One day, God will judge all wickedness. This is both comforting and terrifying it makes me long for everyone to take advantage of God's offer of forgiveness in Christ. 
Christian eschatology breeds compassion. Many years into my Christian life, I still feel the anger, but the cross and the reality of God's power have changed me. Would you allow the cross and the reality of God's power to, to change you today, this week? Jesus takes on the judgment to set us free. This is good news. Salvation um, is coming. Salvation has come. And he will come again as we wait to make all things new, to bring justice and equity to the world as we don't know it yet. So let's repent, brothers and sisters. Let's turn from our sin and turn to Christ with repentance in action and faith in his glorious and gracious salvation for us and his ability to, to transform us and to bear real fruit in us today.